The idea of an actual human on the other side of this image is in there. And you can't automate that away. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Okay, as we all know, there's a tremendous amount of attention that's being paid lately to NFTs and their whiplash market oscillations. Are NFTs good? Bad? A flash in the pan, here to stay? Well, there's an argument to be made that NFTs are actually at best a distraction from the real mind-blowing, totally profound technological revolution that is poised to change art as we know it forever. And that, of course, is the rise of AI art. So what is AI art, and is artificial intelligence here to help artists or to make them obsolete? It's a big, thorny question, and it just so happens that there is a brilliant essay on the topic in the heart of the brand new book by my favorite thinker on big, thorny questions, Artnet News chief art critic Ben Davis. Titled Art in the Afterculture, Ben's new book is a combination of traditional critical essays and speculative fiction, and to my mind, it is an instant classic, the kind of book filled with deep insights that will become a touchstone for future generations curious about how art functioned in our time. I can't overpraise it, but I can tell you that it's available from Haymarket Books and that you should buy Art in the Afterculture and read it for yourself. You can thank me later. In any case, this episode is really focused on the book's ideas on AI art, which are a lot to chew on on their own. So I'm very happy to have Ben Davis on the show to break them down a little bit. So thanks very much for coming back on The Art Angle, Ben. Thanks, Andrew. Once again, you overpromise for me so that I can't help but underdeliver. but <laughs> I'm happy to be here with you to talk about my book. Before we get into the conversation about the AI chapter, which is really kind of a a jewel on its own, let's begin by dipping into the sensational introduction that you wrote for the book, which is really not your typical introduction to a book of art essays, but rather this Orwellian imagining of how art will function in the year of 2037, in a world where a wealthy elite has assumed absolute power through mind-reading surveillance combined with brutal oppression, forcing these pockets of lower class resistance to go live in what you describe as the polluted hinterlands. So let's just let that settle in for a moment. Now, in this world, you describe art as having split into three so-called tendencies. Can you describe what these three tendencies are in the year 2037 in this apocalyptic class warfare universe? Sure, sure. And for those who want a little bit more uh, an optimistic message, I should say that there are two futures that I lay out in the book. This is the one that I start with, which is the darker of the two. This is the title text of the book, Art in the Afterculture, which is kind of a science fiction vignette that brings together some of the themes of the book. And it's really just the present with the contrast turned up a little so you can see some of the things in the background that you might not see. Otherwise, you have a future in which there's, I guess what I call tendency A, the dominant tendency of art, which is kind of direct, aesthetic experience, kind of just jacking straight into an artistic computer and it just gives you an experience of beauty or the sublime or a satisfying creative experience, maybe with an ad mixed in. Though that is the most efficient form of artistic experience in this future because um, it takes out the social parts of art going, which are inefficient. One of my big ideas, one of the things you take away from being an art critic is that a lot of what people find valuable in art is defined by contrast. 
what they find meaningful against the dominant culture or what other groups that they oppose themselves to find meaningful. So there are two other tendencies of art in this speculative description of the near future. And one is tendency B, which is something closer to what we would be familiar as contemporary art today, you know, individual artists making bespoke, meaningful experiences and so on. And I think that will look a little bit antiquated and silly compared to the kind of more industrial strength technological art, but there's still a place for it, right? You know, particularly amongst the ultra rich, you know, who have a lot of leisure time. And so this is a form of experience that's a little bit frivolous. So it symbolizes people's status as being able to invest in frivolous things. And then you have the third tendency of art, which is sort of the shadow of that second one. Because this is a dystopian projection, I just assume larger and larger amounts of people becoming junked by society and larger and larger levels of social conflict and the super high-tech art that sort of defines the mainstream of culture inherently makes people dependent on large corporations that aren't going to be on their side in the event of a real social crisis. So those masses of people are going to produce a culture that's in self-conscious opposition to the other two, and, and that'll be a, a political art that's defined by its invisibility, and, and it'll be a, a neo-Luddite underground form of art. That's a bleak picture of what's going on in culture in the future, but it's a picture that I think extrapolates real trends as a way to kind of get a handle on, on what the stakes of the present are. So one of the real trends that you are really running with is AI art. And this is your tendency A. You talk about something called NARP technology, which is your envisioning of this all-encompassing, personalized kind of form of art that just is so seductive and so irresistible that people will not be able to like tear themselves out of it. It seems that we are looking at the beginnings of something like that in the form of AI art. There's something very similar that is imagined in Ray Bradbury's uh, Fahrenheit 451, a similar kind of screen that just gives you everything you could possibly want and nothing that you would find off-putting or discomforting. AI art that we have right now, even though it's in a fairly nascent and almost toy-like form, seems to be hinting at some of those potentialities. So what is AI art and where did it come from? Sure. Well, have you ever heard of the artist Harold Cohen, Andrew? No, I have not. Yeah, well, I hadn't either until I started reading about the history of AI art. He's a British artist. He represented Britain in the Venice Biennale in 1966. He went on to create a computer program called Aaron, which was an AI artist. It generated images without his conscious direction. You know, he created the program, but it generated images. And he worked on that from the 70s until when he passed away a few years ago. The interesting thing to me is, I guess, if you read contemporary writing about AI art, it's almost like Harold Cohen is like the most important artist of the last half century. His name comes up again and again as someone really important. And he's just not a name that's widely known amongst contemporary artists. And so I just think that's an interesting place to start. I mean, people have been working on procedurally generated art and computer art for a long time. But this one name seems to dominate in the description of visual art that's computer generated. And yet somehow 
the images, the body of work that he's created haven't really entered the art canon, haven't really stuck around as individual works that have gone on to inspire lots of new individual works. They haven't added to the image gallery of references on visual and aesthetic level in a way you might think. I think they just start there because there is a real disjunction in the conversation between people who work on the technical side and people who work on the more traditionally defined artistic side. And it's really interesting to kind of behold the non-conversation that's happened around some of these things. Well, it's interesting that you point out that Harold Cohen was really, you know, this primogenitor of AI art. But even on the technical side, you write in your book that creativity was part of the conception that the scientists were making AI itself, you know, AI as a form of technology from the beginning had some kind of artistic idea baked into it. Can you describe how that worked? One of the starting points that people talk about is this 1956 Dartmouth Summer School, where people came together and started to define artificial intelligence as a field. And from the very beginning, you know, people listed some of the goals of artificial intelligence as being creativity, invention, and words like that. In the imagination, I think, you know, artificial intelligence sometimes conjures up the images of killer robots and so on. But I think that there has been a real interest in creating forms of computer art as a test case for what real artificial intelligence looks like. Because I think that art tends to symbolize in society that which is beyond the machine, that which is uniquely and singularly human. And therefore, the production of AI art is this kind of holy grail that I think implicitly or explicitly a lot of people working in this field assume that when you get there, you have arrived at a place where you have convinced the public that what you're doing is real and worthwhile and valuable. So how is AI art created? What is the actual process? Well, the mechanisms for these things are extraordinarily technical. I mean, the level of creative technological labor, the, just the sheer ingenuity which people are putting into creating neural nets that generate images is really breathtaking and probably beyond my capacity as a humble art critic even to understand because there are just incredibly intricate, fine-grained technical solutions to really minute problems using literally billions of parameters in order to make images and generate text that are trained against huge sets of images or data in order to figure out what human-like communication is. And then in the last couple of years have gotten really good at creating outputs that resemble texts, music, images that have some kind of human intention. So what's eerie about these things is that they function a little bit like a human artist does in the sense that you can input into an interface, give me something that looks like Van Gogh's sunflowers, and it will spit out a bunch of options that look like Van Gogh's sunflowers, but not literal copies of anything. I think that really does start to resemble something very convincing and unnerving in the creative sphere. And so why are these technicians, why are these artists working to create an AI art solution? That is a major question for me because that, I think, as 
someone who evaluates images or thinks about what images mean, it's like the question of why. Why do this? What do these things mean? What is the purpose of them is really important. I think that's one of the things art is. Our conversation with art as people is about our own questions about what it means to be alive now, what meaningful experience is now. I think we're actually in a little bit of an interesting moment in this artificial intelligence and art conversation. Because on the one hand, the technology is getting better by leaps and bounds. And some of the new applications in this field are very quickly eliminating the creative middleman. They are just able to produce really surreal, interesting images at the click of a button. At the same time, among the propagandists of these things, and here I'm thinking of an op-ed in the New York Times by Ahmed El-Gamal called The Robot Artists Aren't Coming, there's been a step back from saying that AI is creative on its own, and there's been a step towards talking about AI as just a tool that artists can use, you know, like the camera, and that on its own, artificial intelligence will never count as a creative agent, but artists will make really extraordinary things with artificial intelligence in a kind of a centaur consciousness, you know, half AI, half human. And so at the one hand, the technology is getting better and better. At the other hand, there's a sort of backing away from that. And I can't tell if that's partly because the implications of how good it's getting are so unnerving that people have moved to the position of kind of reassuring people by stressing the place of artists within the system. But I would say that there are massive industrial concerns working on the problem of simulating AI creativity and creating industrial strength solutions to this. Within that, there are all kinds of artists and small operators looking to find their own way through it and do interesting things with it. I'd say a lot of the artists that I see using it right now are trying to find ways to misuse the technology. I mean, to look for ways to use AI generators against themselves to kind of generate things that expose the machine's limits. It kind of reminds me, at the earlier part of the internet, there was this whole category of glitch art where people found, you know, places where the internet broke down and took, like, broken JPEGs that looked like abstractions and reframed them as art. I think that's a lot of what people are doing right now. Now, I think that will probably be considered a transitory stage in the history of AIR because it is getting better and better and more and more natural feeling to use. And, you know, not a lot of that glitch art from the early internet period has stuck around in the canon is something that people are still talking about now. You talk about how there's all this industrial firepower behind AI art and its development. And I think the AI art algorithm or tool that is getting the most attention right now is something called DALI 2, which is pretty much a generator that you could give it any number of inputs. You could say, I'd like to see a bear ice skating on spaghetti in June in the middle of the Sahara Desert. And in a very short span of time, it can give you a lot of options that you can choose from that are fairly, you know, impressive. And they're good to the degree that they could potentially put an illustrator out of business. You know, you get it instantaneously. And this is made by a company called OpenAI, one of the founders of which is Elon Musk. And 
it opens up the door to the idea that the whole glitch art, the remnants of humanism, the fallibility of the technology is, as you say, it's kind of like receding a little bit. And now we're seeing something that's almost like a pure, full throttle advancement into a really good solution for creating facsimile images. And so what are the kind of ethical or philosophical puzzles that this presents for an art critic like yourself? I should say that there are a lot of ethical questions that I don't touch on in the book because I think other people touch on them better. There's been some writing lately about Dali, the application that you were talking about, how you know it doesn't generate human faces. And that's because it's been deliberately disabled because what it does with faces is very unnerving, that it tends to sexualize women, it tends to enforce racial stereotypes, it tends to generate white men by default. This is all from an article in Wired about this. And the people who are testing Dali, it's not openly available yet, some of them are saying, you know, like, why the rush to get this out? I mean, there are like major, major concerns about the kind of images this is generating. And that is a longstanding concern of AI in general, in that these things are trained on data sets that have come from humans, ultimately, and are labeled by humans, and in often case have various forms of biases baked into them that the technology ends up reinforcing. You know, it's presented as if it's getting around these things, but it ends up reinforcing them. That's a major concern. Also, it's worth mentioning that artificial intelligence is a technology, and you mentioned NFTs at the top, and NFTs have touched off a whole long overdue conversation about the environmental impact of technology, and AI is no different. I mean, these are massive, massive applications that are being treated like toys. I mean, the DALI uses something like 12 billion parameters in order to do what it does. You don't see any of that, but there's like a massive amount of machine power that's going into these things. And there's a lot of recrimination about people taking international flights or people's personal carbon impacts. But if you're worried about those things and then you're using these artificial intelligence operations like they're a trivial toy, you know, unfortunately, they're the much bigger polluter. Every time you run a calculation in one of these like very elaborate things that simulate human cognition, somewhere a coal-fired power plant starts up in order to back it up. So these are major, major issues about those things that I think that deserve a lot of discussion and that hopefully in the same way that it was always the case with cryptocurrency, for instance, that it was very carbon intensive. But it's when it hit the art conversation that that became a major topic of public discussion through NFTs. Hopefully that as the artistic conversation around artificial intelligence becomes more and more mainstream, hopefully we can have some of those conversations more openly. Some forms of technology that have some extreme implications on what our future is going to look like more and more intimately into our life. But that's not what my book is about. My book is about some of the artistic questions raised by artificial intelligence and creativity. And I think that those have a major impact that this is almost like where some of the big questions about art and what art means in society become most visible. What is art for? What even is the definition of a creative subject or a meaningful, symbolic 
act, these are questions that, because it automates some of those functions, the field of AI art is raising and is going to make a more and more intense and intimate part of the creative conversation. To play devil's advocate a little bit, if there's this tremendous carbon footprint that is being created by all the incredible operations that are needed to run AI art, is there maybe some kind of consolation that at least AI art is being designed to create masterpieces of a degree that we've never experienced before, of beauty beyond human capability, beyond human comprehension? Is that the kind of thing that AI art is being aimed at? Possibly. I don't rule it out. I mean, that's the goal and the dream. But again, there's a little bit of a non- conversation between the two sides. I mean, I have great respect for the creativity and ingenuity that goes into creating these forms of technology. I just see much less interest from the other side in questions of what art is or has been historically. And actually, to me, a startlingly formalist idea of what art is, as if art is just a bunch of cool outputs. And that is... An aspect of art. I mean, an aspect of art is you look at something, you're just like, in the first second, you're like, cool, that's cool. But the history of art is not just a collection of cool things, you know. It's a collection of historically important artifacts, of images that have intersected with real human history in different kinds of ways, and that have important in that historical context. And this is one of the things about artificial intelligence is that it's very, very, very good at generating cool forms. And it's very, very bad at understanding context and history. And because the kind of intelligence it represents is not a human intelligence. It is not embodied in the way that we are. It does not relate to other people through social structures in the same way we do. So it doesn't interpret symbols in the same way. And for me, the humanities conversation, the science of humanities is history. That's the master science of humanities, understanding how historical context gave things different meanings and give things different meanings in the present. And all that is kind of being swept to the side or minimized as all of hard history becomes just reconstituted as a series of image assets that are treated as hyper-manipulable images to be reshaped and synthesized in new kinds of ways, but divorced from any sense of their history and context. That's kind of why I asked about the masterpieces, because I was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art yesterday taking my little uh, baby daughter to see the museum for the first time, and we stopped in front of Van Gogh's portrait of a very humble pair of leather shoes just um, you know, sitting on the floor and fairly unremarkable as a piece of subject matter except for the context that shows you that he thought that this proletariat everyday kind of scene was something that was worthy of elevating into his painting. There's this context, there's this humanism behind it. There also is the incredible virtuosity of Van Gogh's style. But then in your book, you make the argument that AI is not going in that direction, of creating masterpieces, social context, or no social context, that actually AI seems to be trending towards creating vast oceans of mediocrity. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I guess I'd nuance that by saying, you know, like most art is mediocre. And that's the complexity of all of this. You know, Margaret Bowden, who is someone who's written about artificial intelligence and creativity, uses this term, the superhuman human fallacy, which is that people are constantly saying about artificial intelligence art, well, it's like, oh, well, it's not Mozart, though. It didn't create something on the level of Van Gogh. But of course, like most human artists aren't Mozart. Most human artists aren't Van Gogh. <laughs> so it's a little bit of an unfair standard to hold artificial intelligence to. And I don't think that, first of all, the generation of masterpieces, I don't even think that's what is being aimed for, because I don't think that there's like an adequate definition of even what the artistic experience is that people are shooting for. I actually admire some of the papers I've read about artificial intelligence and art where they actually formalize what they're trying to accomplish. I was reading some of them and thinking, well, this is actually a little bit more than we give students in art school. You're saying, oh, well, an adequate work of art is something that's like things that people have seen, but not so unlike them that it's too weird. That is a definition of the creative act, which is assimilating existing valued creative objects and permeating them. It's a very formalistic definition of what art is that, again, brackets out any sort of context or meaning. And you mentioned Van Gogh. So I guess it's worth saying, you know, like part of why we value Van Gogh is because of what he represents about the moment that he lived in, which is a moment of tremendous technological change. And a moment when photography was coming in, which forced painting to redefine itself. Partly one way to understand the intense coloration of a Van Gogh painting is that that was something photography couldn't do yet at that moment. And so artists began to like focus on what painting could do. And so you get this sense of the tactility of the paint. The value that he gave that and that we give that is partly because it was trying to claim a space for human creativity at another moment when creativity had become automated. The shoes that you refer to are his record of peasant life, of people who worked from the earth. And he was looking at that and the intense suffering and drama of that and trying to convey that in his work. And the last thing about Van Gogh, I say this with the tremendous and unsettling example of the immersive Van Gogh shimmering over my shoulder as I say this as a slight counterexample to what I'm about to say. But for the longest time, what people have appreciated about Van Gogh and part of the mythology of Van Gogh is his story, is his human story as a suffering individual. And that that is something that people have connected their own suffering to in literal and metaphorical ways. And that's all in there, you know, and some of that's mythology for sure. You know, some of that's Hollywood, but it's in there. The idea of an actual human on the other side of this image is in there. And you can't automate that away. And that's what, again, I find a little unnerving about some of these conversations is that the scientists write things like, yeah, well, you know, we made something that sounds exactly like Mozart, and yet people don't seem to like it as much. What's wrong with these people? And it's like, oh, well, because Mozart isn't just a collection of pleasing sounds. 
there's a social dimension. There's a context for why people like that. There's a story behind it. You learned it in school. You experienced the music in certain kinds of contexts. And that gave you certain kinds of associations with it. Classical music, as I write in the book, is one of the oldest things that people have tried to automate to use AI in order to simulate. There's a program called Emmy by David Cope, along with Harold Cohen, one of the examples that comes up most often. But again, he eventually retired Emmy, saying, it's like, I have made extraordinary efforts to get this appreciated as real music, and people just won't accept these newly generated versions of Mozart and Bach as the real thing. So the question is, is that just totally irrational? Is that like a transitory thing where it's like people are eventually going to become more accustomed to artificially generated creative objects and that kind of resistance will go away? Or does that tell us something about what art is? I tend to think it's the latter. Or I guess I tend to think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think artificial intelligence is going to be used in very meaningful ways and very meaningful human ways. But on the other hand, I do think there is something that tells us about what artistic experience is, what meaningful creative experiences is to people that you can't just wish away. That's an interesting um, segue into uh, something that I found so fascinating about your book, where you talk about the pathos of art, of the humanistic qualities of, of human-made art embedded in a context, embedded in the society, embedded in real human relations. And then you map out these two kind of divergent paths that are leading away from this definition of art into a, a certain kind of AI-enabled future. And one of them is something that I think people know about that's called um, the singularity. And one other path is something that I, I hadn't heard about before, and it's called the surrender. Can you briefly touch on the singularity and, and explain what the surrender is? Singularity is an idea that's been around for a long time. It's just the moment in which human intelligence merges with machine intelligence. And I think that's kind of how people think about a lot of artificial intelligence. But the surrender is this concept that I take from a thinker named Harry Collins. And he says that far more likely than us getting enslaved by superintelligent machines in the near term is that we surround ourselves with machines that are essentially stupid that we mistake for super intelligent because humans have a tendency of psychological projection and it's very easy to think that these things are better than they are. We complete their intelligence by projecting into them to a certain extent. So that's the idea of the surrender. I mean, I think that a positive way to put that when it comes to the AI and art conversation is that the art has to be less good than you think in order for it to function. Well, I guess that's a positive and negative dimension. If you're looking to artificial intelligence art to generate works of art that seem credibly human to people, that's a lower bar to clear than you think because humans are going to like project into images. They're going to project meaning into them. That's called apophenia. It's just the natural human propensity in order to find order in meaningless pattern. But that also means that as these things become more dominant, it's going to be harder and harder to see their flaws, harder and harder to see what they're not offering us. People have, for about 100 years, have envisioned AI as this kind of demon released into the world from another dimension, conjured by a kind of, you know, Dr. Faustus kind of figure. 
into our reality. And, and we have examples like this, like Hal from 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, the Matrix is kind of premised on this idea. You've got Ridley Scott's Prometheus. And then you've got, you know, exceptions like the fabular Spielberg movie AI and some other kind of revisionist movies like After Yang. But it seems that this kind of profound fear of AI as, as a kind of a demon is, is very kind of ingrained into human culture in a sense. And then you've got somebody like Google CEO Sundar Pichai, who says that he believes that AI is more important to human history than the invention of fire and electricity. That's a whole can of worms. AI is, to me, terrifying. I'm a simple human. I'm sure other people see it as, as a brilliant door to universal basic income and universal health and long life and things like that. But AI art is like a kind of a, a separate topic. It's very minor in this broader um, kind of sweep of the future. But there are still risks that are involved. So what are some of the risks of AI art? What are some of the things that kind of give you pause? I think that we live in a time when people are starving for meaning. That's a complicated insight because, you know, what is meaning and who is anybody else to impose their definition of meaningful cultural experience on anybody else? Nevertheless, you know, most studies suggest that it's pretty clear that social media makes you less happy. One of the things you can do to make yourself happier is to abstain from that form of cultural consumption. And yet the contemporary life makes that very, very difficult. And I think that any form of artistic experience conforms to the contours of the social world that it produces it. So there's this very famous fact that people note, which is that a hundred years ago, you can look at what people were predicting about the future would look like, and almost all of them predicted flying cars, but almost none of them predicted that there would be a woman president. You know, so it's just to say that a lot of the technological stuff has a very overdeveloped sense of what is technically possible and a very underdeveloped sense of the social constraints or how things might be warped by the society around them. Technological conversations tend to start from a technologically determinist point of view. And I start from a socially determinist point of view. Like I think meaning is determined by the kind of society that we're in. And these technologies are so good that they're just going to inevitably press us more and more towards the question of what are we doing with our cultural consumption? I mean, we're already at a point where we're massively consuming culture. I mean, the amount of imagery that people take in every day in terms of hours is more than the hours people are awake on average, because most people are consuming multiple things on multiple screens at once. We're in a world, a social structure that is on average set up in order to maximize our consumption. We're in a historically unique situation, for instance, where um, for most of human history, it was the case that people struggled to get enough calories to survive. And now we're in a case where people are loaded up with way too much sugar and carbohydrates just on average. We've reversed that historical direction. And the same is true of images and culture. That historically, people were culturally starved in a way they aren't now. That images were so rare that people worshipped them. And now they're so cheap that people don't even think about them. They consume hundreds of them a minute. That's the world we're living in. Those are the contours to which whatever kind of cultural production is being produced through this is going to conform itself to. A lot of ideas. 
just to ground things a little bit as we close out, you've experimented with some of these AI art platforms through yourself. And you've made some pretty fun images that you've shared on, you know, the Artnet team Slack. What has that experience been like for you? It's an amusing novelty. That's the disorienting thing about the world right now is these technologies, which are absolutely magical, which would have seemed like sorcery of the highest order 20 years ago. And the way they're presented, the way they enter into our lives, they very quickly become novelties that are invisible to us in terms of how interesting they are. I mean, that's the crazy thing about the way this technology is entering into our lives. And that's because they are presented to us as novelties, as objects of disposable consumption. In some ways, that's the artistic task is to kind of like create something more with them. But it's hard because of the entire social structure and pressures around these things pushes us in the other direction and towards a form of mass customization where as soon as you identify something you like, it will give you more and more and more and more of that until you're full. And that is disorienting and it's going to be weird. I mean, the AI image generator that I use, you know, give me a portrait of Ed Sheeran in the style of Jean-Michel Basquiat or give me a portrait of Alexandra Daddario in the style of MC Escher. That's trivial. It takes less than 10 seconds in order to make something that looks pretty amusing and good. But what do those images mean? They don't mean very much. What the works of Basquiat meant have everything to do with Basquiat's life and the context it was in. And I think that the danger, to go back to your earlier question, is partly that artistic cognition is hard. It's defined by its difficulty. It's defined by the fact that you're presented with a series of symbols that are alien to you, that are the traces of another human life or a history that you have to learn something about in order to decode. And the way the AI art conversation is unfolding is all in the other direction in order to like give you things that conform to your pre-existing biases and desires that you don't have to be in touch with the extraordinarily sophisticated processes behind them that just sort of lock you into a feedback loop of your own tastes and desires. And that's going to be extraordinarily seductive, but it's also going to increase people's impatience with doing that kind of valuable symbolic work, which to me is one of the defensible, valuable things about art critical thinking, art thinking, is that you are defending that difficult, hard work of unlocking another consciousness that you might not have known anything about in advance. That is a technology, if you will, to train yourself in order to communicate with other people who are unlike you. And I think that the way this is unfolding and playing out pushes us in the other direction. And that's something to be concerned about. As you mentioned, you do have one kind of more, I'm not going to say utopian, but more positive future that you project in your book that's not the shanty towns in the polluted hinterlands making oppositional art against a... Uh, immovable and invulnerable elite. What's the happy future? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not that happy, you know? <laughs> I guess what I'll say is that I think that our images of the future, creative and artistic and otherwise, contain a contradiction, which is that we're either in an eco-dystopia, a world of scarcity and a neo-barbarism, or we're in a techno-dystopia where we're ruled by the machines. And sometimes we're 
in different kinds of dystopian futures, we're in both. But these are actually contradict each other, right? Because you can't have a future of limitlessly energy-consuming machines and a future where you hit the limits of human ability in order to extract from the environment. They contradict each other. I think the more positive future, no matter what, involves consuming less. It might still involve computer applications of extreme sophistication, but there'll be ones that we use a lot more thoughtfully. I mean, the problem with these things is these are godlike powers that are being treated like toys. And that means that they're, like I said before, ethical stuff about them that are being swept under the rug. I mean, you listen to the people who are testing Dali and they're like, why is this happening so fast? Why are people pushing this out so fast? I can't think of a reason why except, you know, for marketing reasons. They want to get ahead of the other people racing to own this space. I can see positive applications for these things in artistically in the deepest sense, but I do think our future is not going to be one of limitlessly consuming more and more images. Like our image consumption is completely determined by a society that overconsumes resources. We're going to have to learn modes of creative cognition that slow us down a little bit, that learn to value images, take a little more out of more specific forms of culture. And otherwise, what you get is, from my introduction, is tendency three. There will be a reaction to this stuff that is neo-Luddite and is violently opposed to technologically conditioned forms of thinking sooner rather than later, precisely because what this stuff is doing to what it means to be human is so um, radical. Well, Ben, I think if we're looking at a future of limiting our consumption and really focusing in on what's most valuable and what's most important, I, I just want to tell everybody, uh, consume Art in the Afterculture by Ben Davis. It is a great book. It has a little bit of dystopian, anxiety-inducing, nightmarish uh, visions, but it also has a lot of deep thinking and it's a great read so thanks very much for coming on on the art angle ben yeah thanks andrew that's it for this week's episode of the art angle if you like what you've heard you can subscribe to the show on apple Podcasts, spotify wherever else you get your podcasts also take a moment to rate and review us it will help other listeners discover what we're doing the art angle is produced by sona Mallory, tim schneider and caroline goldstein thanks for listening and see you next week